Good to see all of you this morning. Happy New Year, yes. Uh, just by a, raise, a show of hands, raise your hand if God has been kind to you this week. <laughs> Some of you raising two hands, I like it. That sounds like him, doesn't it? <clears throat> that sounds like something he would do, because that's who he is. We never um, experience a kindness just like he gives us, right? We see glimpses of it from other Christians who are showing the love of Christ to others or maybe to you, but my love to you and your love to me and my kindness to you and your kindness to me will be flawed and imperfect, but the kindness and mercy and love of the Savior is perfect. He came down from his throne to rescue us from eternal ruin. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? The other night, we, uh, we had just come out of the house at one of Jessica's uh, Christmas family get-togethers with her extended family, and we went outside, and it was nighttime, and the sky was so clear, and it was just like you could grab a star. I mean, there, it was like it's in... Ultra HD right there in front of you. And um, when I was looking at that, the Lord brought to mind this scripture. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8, 3 and 4. It's amazing that God would even give mankind a thought for a second after what we did, right? And yet in his mercy and his grace, he is very mindful of us. He cares for us very deeply. He loves us with a love that will not let us go. And I hope you're just happy Every day in the gospel when you remember these things. It'll make you happy. Makes me happy. <clears throat> we might be wondering where we're going next in our Sunday school hour since we finished our series through Hebrews last week. And I'm excited to begin a new chapter together with you. And um, just as a kind of a personal testimony, a few months back, the Lord kind of laid it on my heart, if you will, to really study a particular subject on my own, in my own personal study time. And as I studied it and pondered it and read good material and read the scriptures and also began to talk with Tim and Dad about possibly doing a Sunday school series on it, they both seemed to think it was a good idea. And it's a subject that is not going to be unfamiliar to us by name, but it seems like a subject that we take for granted very easily. Um, many people engage in this particular thing week in and week out, yet I fear that very few really give it a, a deep thought or any sort of study. The subject I'm talking about is the church, the church. I'm not talking about the church building. 
Um, I'm talking about the institution of the church that God himself set up. And if you want to get technical, I guess the proper theological term would be ecclesiology, the study of the church. Now, it's very possible and probably very common, at least by my experience, for someone to be able to attend a church service week in and week out and never really consider very carefully what a church is or what its priorities should be. So the question that we want to ask ourselves in this series is, what are the characteristics or marks, if you will, of a healthy church? That's going to be our goal in this series. We want to study from the Bible what the distinguishing marks of a healthy church are. Now, there's a lot of preference things that are okay to do it that way in the church, isn't there? For instance, we can use our own preferences when we pick out the color of the carpet or the type of pews or seating that we're going to have in here. We can use an amount of preference when we design the building or when we pick out the musical instrumentation for a piece of music or pick a certain style to play or sing. But when it comes to certain things, like the mission of the church or the priorities of the church, the order of the church, those things are out of the realm of our preferences, aren't they? Those things are up to God. We might say they're his preferences. Why? Because it's not our church. It's God's church, right? This church is God's church. Now, I trust that you, as a church member, want this church to be a healthy church. I trust it's your desire to do your part to make this church, a, this local church, a place that is pleasing and glorifying to God. Would you say that's something that's important to you? Amen. It should be. It should be of utmost importance to all of us. After all, what are we here for? We're here for the glory of God, ultimately, right? Everything we do ought to give God glory, including how we think about and how we handle the various aspects of church life. So, let me tell you how we plan to do this in this series. Over the next several months, Tim and I will rotate teaching through some of these distinguishing marks of a healthy church. And <clears throat> I just want to, right here at the beginning, as an intro today, this will only be an intro today, I just want to emphasize to us all that it is vitally important that we know and understand what a healthy church is. We are not going to become a healthy church by luck or by chance. We don't, it, it's not the type of thing that you kind of just fall into. Um, you, you can't coast and just become a healthy church. It's not a passive thing. It is a very active thing. 
It'll take some very serious effort on our part and resolve. And this resolve will be on a corporate level, all of us, and an individual level as church members. We'll say, we see these things from Scripture and we want to obey God in these things. That is the makings for a healthy church. That is what I mean when I say a healthy church, by the way. A church who is corporately and individually obedient to God and who takes his word seriously. So a church on its way to being a healthy church, I think, is this. They see the commands or precepts in God's word that pertain to the church. They see what its priorities are supposed to be from Scripture. They see what its mission is supposed to be from Scripture. And they examine themselves to see if there's something that needs adjusting. And then, if it does... They prayerfully adjust, right? All because they want to be pleasing to their Lord. And I trust that is where your heart is today. So, if you want to have a title for this series, maybe it's Marks of a Healthy Church. That's simple. Marks of a Healthy Church. And that might sound familiar to some of you. You might be familiar with um, a parachurch ministry called Nine Marks. I don't know if any, raise your hand if you're familiar with Nine Marks. A couple people. So I'll give a disclaimer that both me and Tim plan to use their material to aid us in our study and in this hour. Um, So many of this is not just some original ideas with us. Um, Nine Marks is led by a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Dever. He's pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And some years ago, he preached a series at that church when he was kind of new there about the marks or the distinguishing marks of a healthy church. And many people encouraged him to write a book containing that material. And so he did. And it was called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Hence the name, Nine Marks. Um, And he wrote that book, I believe, in the year 2000. And if you can believe it, that is 20 years ago. The year 2000 was 20 years ago. And it's seen, that book has seen two updated editions since then. And now there's the organization, as I said, Nine Marks. And they have a great website. That's a really good resource for you. Ninemarks.org, if you want to write that down. And so uh, we have this book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and we've said over and over again, or they've said, excuse me, over and over again, that those nine things don't make an exhaustive list of the characteristics of a church. In other words, they don't say everything that could be said about what a healthy church is, but they are, in his opinion, and I think he's right, some of the more important and often neglected ones in our day and time. And so they produce this material, these books, for many years now, and I encourage you to check them out. By the way, I don't know if we have any up here, but the books that we had been, they're over in the other room, aren't they? 
the books that we've been recommending to you to read that we've been trying to get everybody to read, by the way. Who hasn't read the books? Can I embarrass someone? Okay, I'm not trying to embarrass you. Church Membership and Evangelism, produced by Nine Marks. This is a wonderful um, organization. And they have 12 books now in that little series. Those books are from the series Building Healthy Churches. Um, So a lot of this material that we'll go over in this series comes from those books. So you will not go wrong reading those books maybe along with us if you want to do that. They're very short. They're very readable, but very helpful, very insightful and helpful. So you'll see um, as we move along, this is not going to be some kind of formula, magical formula for a healthy church. These are simply things that the Bible tells us to be doing or prioritizing, whether directly by command or indirectly by coming to a conclusion about this is everything that the Bible teaches here, I see that we need to be prioritizing this. It's those type things. Um, It's not a church growth scheme, okay? You can find a host of church growth books if you go to the Christian bookstore, unfortunately, um, because most of them are fairly terrible, Um, but this is not a church growth geared series. Um, Those books are geared toward getting as many people inside the church building as possible, as if that is the mark of being healthy, you've got more people. Well, that's not what we're going to talk about. The goal ultimately is not how many people do you have. It's about, are those people, however many there are, are they obeying God? Are we being faithful to our calling? Are we being pleasing to God? Because a church could be very small and still be faithful. A church can be small and still be healthy according to God's standards, which are the only standards that matter, right? It's up to him to add numbers to us. That's his will. Our job is not to coax people in here. Our job is to be faithful to his word. And that is what this series is going to be about. So, for today, as just an intro, I just want to press upon you the importance of these things. And I hope and pray that I don't have to, I don't think I do, that I don't have to twist anyone's arm to want to study this. Um, I think that you guys probably see the importance of these things already, even before I mentioned to you today. But if not, then maybe we will start a wonderful journey together today. So let me just say this at the beginning. As this world runs farther and farther away from God and more and more churches abandon biblical principles and as our country as a whole just becomes more antagonistic towards Christians and more atheistic and more humanistic 
you are going to want, you are going to need to be a part of a healthy church. Not just any church, but a healthy church. That will mean that you are a part of a church that God is pleased with and that he will bless, right? Do you remember those churches that John wrote to at the beginning of the book of Revelation? God told many of them to correct some things, to repent of some things, or it says he would remove their lampstand. I understand that to mean that he will cause them to cease to be a church. Their testimony will just die out. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to happen to any church that I'm a part of. I'm sure that you don't either, right? I hope you'd say the same. So being part of a healthy church seems to be more important than ever when you think about the current spiritual climate, especially in our country. Now, here's just a couple more reasons for studying what a healthy church is. I was helped by Tim with some of these. It's a matter of personal obedience to God. Kind of already hinted at that. If God tells us in his word to have certain priorities and certain practices in our church, and then we don't do our part to make sure that happens, then what are we doing? We are sinning. We're sinning against God. It is a matter of personal obedience. Another reason it's a loving response to a good God. Has God been good to you? We just said earlier, everybody, I think, raised their hand that God had been kind to you this week. He's, he's rescued us. He's saved us. He's going to one day present us as Christians faultless before his Father due to the imputed righteousness of Christ that is on us. And the least we can do is try to represent him before the world in his church in a manner that is consistent with his character and with his commands. Right? Another reason God blesses an obedient church we can't think that we can ignore any of his commands or any of his mandates for the church and still have him work in our midst. We just talked about those churches in Revelation. There comes a time, apparently, in the life of a church, if it's disobedient, that God will remove their lampstand and cease to use them. He may choose to just do away with that church. I'm not talking about killing everybody in the church, but ending that church. It falls apart. It crumbles. God will work through healthy and obedient churches. We want to be one of those, right? Another reason to know these things, to want to know these things, I'll kind of give, you, give it to you in the form of an illustration. Have you ever had a job where you wondered why in the world management made that particular decision. That's everybody in here, isn't it? Why in the world would they make that decision? And maybe uh, it made zero sense to you at first, but then 
Maybe later you came to find out there were some other things going on that you didn't know about at the time that management did. And then maybe you understood just a little bit better why they made that particular decision. The way I'm relating that situation to this one is this. It will be very hard for us to understand why a pastor might lead the church in a certain direction if there's not a church-wide understanding of what the church is to be about, right? Another way of saying it is you can get behind a leader if you know that they're seeking to be obedient to God in leading his church, right? I can get behind that man. Um, Well, if we know what the marks of a healthy church are, and then we see a pastor making decisions and holding certain priorities that are consistent with what the Bible teaches on the church, then we can say in good conscience, I can get behind that man. He's taking us to a healthy place. He's following scripture. I ought to make it as easy as possible, as joyful as possible for him to lead me in that direction, right? We just read Hebrews the other week about obeying and submitting to the church leaders in a way that makes their job joyful. The best way to do that is if we all know what a healthy church is and we all want to go in that direction, right? There'll be nothing more discouraging to a pastor than for him to know what direction he needs to take the church according to the Bible, yet he's the only one. No one else cares to know what the healthy church is, much less wants to go that way. You see how that could cause problems. And I'm not saying that's happening here, by the way. I'm just simply saying on a basic level, the way we avoid all of that is by all of us wanting the same goal. A healthy church is the goal, as defined not by us or not even by nine marks, but by the Bible. And to that end, we've all got to know what a healthy church is in the first place. And I hope, I hope that has at least somewhat convinced you, just three or four reasons, that this is important. This topic is important for us to study. Now, what are some of these marks? What are they? These distinguishing marks of a healthy church. As I said, this list that I'm about to give you is not exhaustive. But I do want you to know where we're going, where the series is heading. And so, here's where we're going. I'll try to rattle them off slowly for people taking notes. There's 12 of them that we'll be talking about, roughly. Some of them are kind of melded into each other, but there's 12. Number one, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching. Tim will begin talking about that one next week. Number two, biblical theology. Number three, sound doctrine. Number four, the gospel. Number five, conversion. Number six, evangelism. Number seven, 
church membership. Number eight, church discipline. Number nine, discipling. Number 10, church elders. That's pastors. That's church leadership. Number 11, prayer. And number 12, missions. So a healthy church will have a biblical understanding of each of those things, and it will prioritize those things over lesser things. So in these opening remarks today, I just, I do want to, among other things, I do want to give you some sort of working definition of what a church actually is. And by church, we have to clarify always, don't we? People mean different things by that. By church, I don't mean the invisible, universal church that is made up of every single Christian of all time. There is that church, isn't there? The end of, or excuse me, the universal, kind of invisible church. I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about a local church who knows each other and is covenanted together with each other. Well, first thing, of course, we'd have to say it is made up of truly born-again Christians, right? That is what a local church is made of. Where you don't have Christians, you don't have a church, right? People who know the true gospel and have been regenerated by God's Spirit. But it's not just that, is it? At any given time in Walmart, For instance, there may be Christians walking around, but that's not a church. They don't know each other. They haven't covenanted together to meet with each other and hold each other accountable and love each other in these committed type of long-term ways. Now, way back in the Reformation days, in the 1500s, this question, what is a church? It really came to the forefront again because the Catholic church... They had always just claimed their authority because, well, we arose from succeeding from the apostles. That's where our authority comes from. And people started to question that authority because they would say, will a true church of God teach a gospel that is a false gospel like the Catholic church was doing? Surely not, they said. So they went back to the scriptures to see what a true church really is. And most of them came to the same conclusion. I'll use John Calvin's definition as a starting point, not because he has some different, unique definition of what a church is, but because his definition is along the lines of what all of them were saying, okay? He said this, where we see the word of God purely preached and heard And the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, he's talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism, where we see the word of God purely preached and heard, the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there a church of God exists. Pretty simple, right? The word purely preached and heard and the ordinances rightly observed. There's a church. Now, Mark Dever in his book says this. 
we can see in these two marks, gospel proclamation and observance of the sacraments, both the creation and the preservation of the church, the fountain of God's truth and the lovely vessel to contain and display it. The church is generated by the right preaching of the word and the church is contained and distinguished by the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Presumed in this latter mark is that church discipline is being practiced, he says. And if you sort of broaden out that ordinances one, the sacraments part, just a little bit, and you say those things are part of discipling, which they are in a way, then you have these two things. You have the priority of the word of God and things related to discipling. That's what the church is about. And those 12 things that I listed out for you earlier revolve around those two things. I don't know if any of you wrote those down. I think a lot of you wrote those down from what I could tell. Um, Listen, I'm going to read them again and, and think about how they line up. The first six things have to do with preaching and God's word. Expositional preaching, biblical theology, sound doctrine, the gospel, conversion, and evangelism. All having to do with God's word and preaching. Then the last six have to do with leading and making disciples. Church membership, church discipline, discipling, church leadership, prayer, and missions. So these things aren't coming out of left field in the year 2000 when Mark Dever wrote his book. These things fall in line with the great theologians of church history for all time because they come not based on their independent opinions because they're based on Scripture And they see those things coming to the forefront in the scripture. And I hope we'll see the same. Now, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to, if if you'll just focus with me for a second, I want to read to you kind of an extended portion of Mark Dever's introduction to his book because I don't think I could say it any better than he did. He's introducing these marks to his readers, which is what I wanted to do today. And as I said, they've added a few since the book was written. So here you'll hear him talking about nine of them, but we'll deal with roughly 12 of them. So bear with me and listen to this introduction from Mr. Dever. He says, The first five marks of a healthy church we will consider reflect the concern to preach rightly the word of God. Mark 1 is about preaching itself. It is a defense of the primacy of expositional preaching as a reflection of the centrality of God's word. Why is the word central? Why is it the instrument of creating faith? The word is so central and so instrumental because the word of the Lord holds out the object of our faith to us. It presents God's promise to us from all kinds of individual promises throughout the Bible all the way to the great promise, the great hope, the great object of our faith, Christ himself. 
The word presents that which we are to believe. Then, as Mark 2, we consider the framework of this message, biblical theology. And we will add sound doctrine in there, right there. We must understand God's truth as a coherent whole, coming to us first and foremost as a revelation of himself. Questions of who God is and of what he is like can never be considered irrelevant to the practical matters of church life. Different understandings of God will lead us to worship him in different ways. And if some of those understandings are wrong, some of those ways in which we approach him can also be wrong. This is a major theme in the Bible, even if it is almost entirely neglected these days, he says. In Mark 3, we consider the heart of the Christian message as we seek a biblical understanding of the gospel. How many other messages are churches hawking as the saving good news of Jesus Christ? And yet, how discerning are we in how we understand the gospel ourselves? How we teach it? How we train others to know it? Is our message, though larded with Christian pieties, basically a message of self-salvation? Or is there something more in it? Does our gospel consist only of a universal, or excuse me, does our gospel consist only of universal ethical truths for our daily lives? Or are there once for all historical, special saving actions of God in Christ at the root of it? That brings us to the reception of the message. Mark 4, a biblical understanding of conversion. One of the most painful tasks pastors face is trying to undo the damage of false converts who have been too quickly and thoughtlessly assured by an evangelist that they are indeed Christians. Such apparently charitable activity may lead to short bursts of excitement, involvement, and interest. But if an apparent conversion does not result in a changed life, then one begins to wonder at the unwitting cruelty of convincing such people that because they once prayed a prayer, they have fully investigated all the hope that God has for them in life. If that failed, we may leave them to think, then Christianity has nothing more to offer me, no more hope. No more life. I tried and it didn't work. We need churches to understand and teach what the Bible teaches about conversion. Mark 5 sets forth a biblical understanding of evangelism. If in our evangelism we imply that becoming a Christian is something that we can do ourselves, we disastrously pass on our misunderstanding of the gospel and of conversion. John Broadus, well-known New Testament scholar and 19th century preacher, wrote a catechism of Bible teaching. And in it, he posed the question, does faith come before the new birth? And he answered, no. It is the new heart that truly repents and believes. Broadus understood that in our evangelism, we must be partners with the Holy Spirit, presenting the gospel but relying on the Holy Spirit of God to do the true convicting and convincing 
and converting. Are your churches or your own evangelistic practices in line with this great truth? The other nexus of problems in today's churches has to do with the right administration of the borders and markers of Christian identity. More generally put, they have to do with problems in leading disciples. First, in Mark 6, we address the question of the whole framework for discipleship, which is a biblical understanding of church membership. In this past century, Christians have all but ignored biblical teaching on the corporate nature of following Christ. Our churches are awash in self-centered narcissism, hyper-individualism, thinly veiled in everything from gift inventories to targeted churches that aren't for everybody. When we read 1 John or the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus never intended us to be Christians alone and that our love for others who aren't just like us shows whether we truly love God. Many churches today have problems with the basic definition of what it means to be a disciple. So in Mark 7, we explore a biblical understanding of church discipline. Is there any behavior that churches should not tolerate? Are any teachings in our churches beyond the pale? Do our churches indicate a concern for anything beyond their own institutional survival and expansion? Do we evidence an understanding that we bear the name of God and live either to his honor or to his shame? We need churches to recover the loving regular and wise practice of church discipline. In Mark 8, we examine Christian discipleship and growth. Evangelism that does not result in discipleship is not only incomplete evangelism, but is entirely misconceived. The solution is not that we need to do more evangelism, but that we need to do it differently. We don't simply need to remember to tell people to come to church after we have prayed the prayer with them. We need to tell them to count the cost before they pray that prayer. Finally, Mark 9 focuses on the need to recover a biblical understanding of church leadership. Leadership in the church should not be granted as a response to secular gifts or position or family relationships or in recognition of length of service in the church. Leadership in the church should be invested in those who seem to evidence in their own lives and who are able to promote in the life of the congregation as a whole the edifying and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This is the last paragraph, or second to the last. The end and purpose of all this is the glory of God as we make him known. Throughout history, God has desired to make himself known. That is why he delivered Israel from Egypt in the Exodus and why he delivered them again from the Babylonian exile. Scores of passages in Scripture tell of God's desire to make himself known. He has created the world and has done all that he has done for his own praise. And it is right and good that he should do so. Calvin used to call this world 
the theater of God's splendor. Others have referred to, to history as one great parade culminating in the glory of God. Mark Ross has put it this way, we are one of God's chief pieces of evidence. Paul's great concern in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 for the church is that the church manifest and display the glory of God, thus vindicating God's character against all the slander of demonic realms, the slander that God is not worth living for. God has entrusted to his church the glory of his own name. Getting close to the end. Everyone, those who are church leaders and those who are not, is made in the image of God. We are to be walking pictures of the moral nature and righteous character of God, reflecting it around the universe for all to see especially in our union with God through Christ. This, therefore, is what God calls us to and why he calls us to it. He calls us to join together with him and together in our congregations, not for our glory, but for his own, end quote. So there's what we're going to be talking about for the next few months. And our prayer is that God would do a work right here at Jackson Bible Church that he'd teach us what a healthy church is and that he'd give us all a deep desire to be that kind of church. Let me just close with some scripture. This talk today has just been kind of an introduction to the series. And trust me, we'll be looking at lots of scripture together even if we didn't today necessarily. But let me close with these words. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he tells them this in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church is God's church. He decides what its priorities are. He decides what the mission is to be. He decides how it should operate. And all of this with him is not a mechanical or cold or stoic thing to him. He loves his church. The verse says he obtained it with his own blood. The church is the apple of his eye. He's not cold toward us. He's very warm toward us. He's very caring toward us. He cares what his church is doing in the world and how it represents him in the world. Another verse, as I close, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, also says something similar. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It would be very odd, wouldn't it, to set the bar of love, of the level of love that a husband should have for his wife. It would be odd to set it kind of low, wouldn't it? So the Lord there, the Holy Spirit inspired the writer 
to set the bar as high as it goes. Your love is to be like Christ's love for the church. And if you're not sure how much he loves his church, well, just know this. He gave himself up for her. What does that tell you? A high standard for husbands, yes, but in another way, a powerful reminder of God's love for his church. So in response to his love, let's be a church that operates and prioritizes the way that God says will be pleasing to him. He deserves our obedience, doesn't he? He deserves all our praise. The great head of the church is worthy of churches that are pleasing to him. May he make us one of them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would stoke a fire in all of us to want to be a healthy church. Give us concentration and focus as we seek to carefully study some of the marks of a healthy church together. Lord, may it not be tedious to us, but may it just be the joy of our hearts to find out what pleases you so that we can do it. We pray that you give us true heart desires for what you want. Make our will line up with your will so that we would want to prioritize these things that your word says we are to prioritize. And Lord, we just thank you for teaching us and discipling us through your holy word. Continue to do it now, Lord, in this next hour. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.